I'll pray for us once more. Father, thank you for the word that has now just been read. We believe your word is truth, that it is inspired, God-breathed, and now we ask for your spirit, that you may breathe your spirit upon us through the preaching of your word, that we might have understanding, and not just understanding, but that we might respond rightly with faith and obedience to your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think it's fair to say, it would be a fair generalization to say that we are a risk-averse people. We like to play it safe. And I think that's evident in our church's overall response to the pandemic. And I don't mean that at all as a critique. I, I, I appreciate, as I know many of you do, our church's careful and incremental approach to reopening the building and to restarting in-person ministries. What I mean by risk-averse is that we generally don't like to take risks in life. We hedge our bets. We're hesitant to really step out in faith, to make a tough decision, to take a big risk without there being a safety net in place or, or a backup plan that we can fall on. And that's because a good many of us grew up with a bubble around us and a safety net underneath us put there graciously by our parents. For many of us, it's actually our parents or maybe it's our grandparents who took the big risks, who left the safety and the comfort of a village or a hometown, who moved to a new city or to a new country with everything they own fit inside a couple of suitcases who had to study hard while paying for their own tuition by working harder. They didn't have a safety net. They didn't have a backup plan. But because of their hard work, because of their willingness to take a big risk, their children are now growing up in a very different environment. Many of us grew up in a sheltered environment, in a secure environment. We never worried about there being food in the fridge or, or on the table. Even leaving home, going off to college or moving to a new city or to a new country, it wasn't all that risky or, or frightening because either our parents were paying for our tuition or our rent, or even if, even if we were taking care of that, even if we couldn't make ends meet, we knew that a phone call was all it took to get our parents' help. So for many of us, we have rarely if ever, made a decision in life that would rightly be described as risky. Which means we have rarely, if ever, stepped out in faith and followed God into a life situation, life situation where success would be considered unlikely by human standards. We have been playing it safe for most of our lives. We've had being practical, being realistic, drilled into our heads, some of us were outright discouraged to chase our dreams, or at least strongly encouraged to make sure that we had a very secure backup plan. You feel like God's calling you to pursue the arts or to pursue vocational ministry, you know, to be a missionary, to be a pastor? Uh, well, 
at least be pre-med, just in case, just in case. You, you feel a strong calling to make a career change, but one that is going to be less financially lucrative or stable? Hmm. Why don't you just wait until your kids are grown up and hopefully married off before chasing all those crazy dreams? Be realistic. Don't take too many risks. These kinds of conversations are all too familiar. And I'm not surprised if these conversations did take place with your parents. But just understand, and, and I, I, hope you, I hope you understand that from their point of view, they took the big risks in life so that you wouldn't have to. That's what they're thinking. So that you could grow up with a safety net, with a backup plan, luxuries, securities that, that they never had. And so I hope you understand that I am not trying to criticize at all the way our parents raised us to be risk averse. I think it's understandable coming from their experience, from their point of view. But what I am trying to point out this morning is that this tendency that's now within us, this tendency towards risk aversion is going to limit us from experiencing the depths of our faith and the heights of God's glory and power at work in our lives. That's what we need to realize. That God wants to grow your faith. He wants to display his glory and to demonstrate his all-sufficient power in your life. But according to God's design, that typically happens in the context where there's some risk involved. Where we have to step out in faith. And by necessity, that means we need to trust in the Lord in those moments to pull us through. And that, my friends, is where Gideon found himself in our text this morning. Gideon and his army are on the cusp of victory over the Midianites, but lest they miss God's mighty hand at work, lest they take credit for themselves, God rearranges the situation so that they are facing extremely long odds. Gideon and his men cannot play it safe. They have to take a risk. They have to step out in faith. But once they do, well, there is no question now that victory will belong to the Lord and all glory will be to God. So this morning, my friends, as we walk through Judges chapter 7, I want to show you three things that the Lord is doing in Gideon's life and by extension what he's doing all the time in our lives three things. First, we see that the Lord is stacking the odds against us. Second, he's securing the glory for himself. And third, he's supplying the assurance that we lack. The first thing God often does in our lives is he tends to stack the odds against us. And it's clearly demonstrated in the way that he trimmed down Gideon's army to less than 1% of their original size. He had no intention of letting Gideon walk into battle with his head held up high, feeling very confident, very secure in his chances. The Lord's intent was to stack the odds of success against his own people. Let's consider the context first. Uh, this 
was during a time in Israel's history where they experienced a cyclical pattern of idolatry and theological compromise, which led to outside nations oppressing them and enslaving them, which then led to Israel crying out to the Lord for help, crying out in repentance, and the Lord would then provide a deliverer, a judge who would lead Israel to throw off oppression and to return to the Lord. This was a pattern that kept happening in their history. Now, in this particular cycle, Israel was under Midianite oppression. And Gideon was the one that was called by God to save Israel from the hand of Midian. But Gideon was hesitant. He was skeptical that he could do it. Skeptical to step out in faith, really. At the end of chapter 6, he tests God He tests God's promises by throwing out that fleece, if you are familiar with that story, asking God to to show him a sign to prove if he really did mean it when he promised victory. I don't have time to get into all the details, but essentially he was just trying to confirm that the Lord really meant it when he said, you will have victory over Midian. That episode with the fleece is not meant to be prescriptive. It's not meant to teach us how we ought to interact with God. Rather, it's illustrative of Gideon's weak faith uh, and of God's merciful compassion to still give him a sign in spite of his weak faith. So at the start of chapter 7, what we find is Gideon leading an army of 32,000 Israelite soldiers. And he was, remember, just given a sign, not just once, but twice, of God's commitment to achieve victory for Israel. So Gideon must be feeling pretty good about his chances at the start of chapter 7. He must like his odds. But God doesn't. The odds are too much in Gideon's favor. There's not enough risk involved. And so the Lord intentionally stacks the odds against Gideon by shrinking down the size of his army. Look with me at the text. Look in verse 1. We see there the two camps of the Israelites and the Midianites. Uh, They're in place. They're ready for battle. And then in verse 2, the Lord says the unexpected. He says the last thing that Gideon wants to hear. You have too many men. You need fewer men. Look at verse 2. The people that are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Or there it is, friends. There's the rationale. You need fewer men, lest you think you won the battle. Lest you assume that you saved yourself. So to keep you from drawing that faulty assumption, let's trim down your army. So the first trimming brings the number down to 10,000. Verse 3 says that whoever's fearful and trembling should just go home. And 22,000 men take up that offer. They do not want a part of this fight. So they go home. These 22,000 tremblers, that's over two-thirds of the army instantly gone. Then God says in verse 4, ah, that's still too many men. So the Lord sets up this scenario to trim it down some more. He tells Gideon to take all the men to the water and to tell them to get a drink. And the Lord says to take notice of those who kneel down 
and put their mouths into the river, just straight up going headfirst into the river to drink, and set those men apart from the ones who, who scoop the water up into their hands and, and, and lap it with their tongues like a dog. And in the end, only 300 used their hands to, to pick up the water and, and, and to lap it. And God says, okay, I'm going to save you with those 300 lappers. Those are your men. Now, you know, some commentators try to identify some, some sort of rhyme or reason in this particular test. And, and they would argue that, oh, those, those 300 men, they, they, they were the vigilant ones. They were the wise ones because, you know, they were more alert and, and mindful, you know, to, to keep their eyes forward as they're, as they're lapping their water to, to keep an eye out for the enemy. You know, so, so those are, are the more vigilant soldiers. Uh, honestly, I, who knows? I mean, I, I think that's a bit of a stretch to try to come up with some kind of of rhyme or reason here. I honestly don't think there's anything particularly special about these 300 soldiers. It's not like Gideon is meant to think, oh, phew. Oh, okay, well, if we have to go small, at least I got these 300 here. At least I got, I got my best and smartest soldiers. Okay, that's fine, Lord. I can, I can do something with that. No, that's, that, that's not the point. You know, th- th- this is nothing like the Battle of Thermopylae. You know, this is, this is not like King Leonidas and his brave 300. This is not like the Alamo, right? These, these aren't the 300 who courageously, you know, stepped over that line that, that William Travis supposedly drew in the sand. There's nothing special about these guys. These are just 300 random guys. And the point is that Gideon... And these 300 should be very scared right now and very confused as to what is happening. And they should be considering just how small they are right now compared to this vast Midianite army. They should be considering how they are staring down at some very long odds. And there's a huge risk involved. Now, why would God do this? Why would God stack the odds against his own people? It goes back to verse 2. Look there again. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God is trying to preemptively undercut any temptation to boast. Any thought that victory could have come by your own hands. And that, my friends, is what God does. He will often lead his people. He will lead us into difficult situations, into risky situations where if there is going to be victory, he has left no room, no doubt that victory comes not by our hands, but by his strong and mighty hands. As a risk-averse people, we need to start asking ourselves some tough questions. Are we willing to step out in faith beyond the safety net, beyond the backup plan, following God into situations where success is so unlikely by human standards that victory can only be credited to the Lord? Are we willing to go there? I think too many of us 
are not taking enough risks in life. We're setting our goals far too low. They're too easily attainable. We, we can actually achieve them just by our own strength, by our own ingenuity. Friends, let's live by faith and not by sight. Let's challenge one another to really step out in faith and to take some holy risks for the Lord, to live in such a way that he gets the glory whenever we do succeed. Are we willing to live that way? Well, that leads to our second point. The second thing we need to see God doing in this story is he is securing the glory for himself. And that's what's being stressed in verse 2. God trimmed down the army of Israel, lest Israel boast over me and claim that they saved themselves by their own hands. Now, notice the problem is, is, is not just that Israel might boast, but that Israel might boast over God, that they might take credit away from God, that they might rob God of his due glory. When we don't trust in the Lord, but instead lean on our own understanding, relying on ourselves to secure victory in our lives, we're not just being self-reliant. We're not just being a risk-averse people. We're actually robbing God. We're glory robbers. But as we read on, we see God making sure that that he's going to secure glory for himself. He won't share it with Gideon and the 300. The instructions that he gives for how the Israelites are to dress for battle says it all for us. These 300 are to be dressed not with swords and shields, but with trumpets torches, and clay jars. That's all they're given as they go off to battle. And then they're directed to divide divide themselves into three groups of 100 and to flank the Midianite campsite. And when Gideon gives the signal to start the attack, all the men are to stand in place. That's what it says. Look there in verse 21. It says, every man stood in his place around the camp and all the Midianite army ran. They just stood there and the Midianites took off. Could it be any clearer as to who deserves all the credit? They literally stood there and watched God rout their enemies. It says that God threw the Midianite army into disarray. They, they turned the sword on each other. They, they, they were just you know, killing each other. They were crying out and fleeing. Now, the Israelites, it says that they eventually did attack, but they weren't bravely charging towards another charging army. It's not like this, you know, this, this you know, scene in a movie where the two armies converge. No, they were pursuing a fleeing, diminished army. Clearly, God deserves all the glory, all the credit for the victory here. But of course, that didn't stop Gideon from trying to take a little credit for himself. Did you see that? Uh, If you look in verse 18, Gideon is passing along the battle plans that God gave him. He knows how, how, how risky and how strange it all sounds. He realizes that this battle is going to be won in such a way where God is going to get all the glory but that doesn't stop him from trying to take in, you know, sneak in a little, a little bit for himself. And so he tells them in verse 18, 
When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon agrees that this fight is for the Lord. But can it be just for him as well? Just, you know, a, a little? Like, can, I have a, can, can I have a little bit of credit? Uh, a little bit of glory, Lord? I mean, God, God, you, you're, you're totally the headliner. You, you are the, the main attraction. Can, can I just have my name in, like, smaller print, like, next to yours? Like, like that's, that's what he's asking for. But the answer that's given to us in Scripture is simply no. The Lord says, my glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 48. He is zealous for his name, we're told in Scripture. He is jealous for his glory. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I am a jealous God, the Lord says. Now, please, don't misunderstand his intentions. God is not jealous for his glory and unwilling to share it because he's selfish or, or insecure. No, God is perfectly glorified within his own triune existence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit perfectly glorify one another in perfect harmony. And all the angels and all the host of heaven highly exalt his name. So God lacks nothing. He is perfectly satisfied. So he doesn't condemn our glory robbing because it leaves him wanting for more. No, God is against glory robbing because when we take glory for ourselves, we end up only hurting ourselves. When we take a little bit of glory for ourselves, what happens is that we become a little bit more boastful, a little bit more prideful, and then what happens? We become a lot less dependent on God to our detriment. And so this is why God trimmed down Gideon's army, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And in the same way, in all of our victories and all of our successes, God wants to keep us from boasting. He wants to secure glory for himself. He wants to receive all the credit. And that is with our best interest in mind. Because if you start taking some credit for yourself, and you start receiving some glory for yourself, then you are going to start relying on yourself more and depending on God less. And so, my friends, if you have not yet developed the spiritual habit of giving all glory to God, of deflecting all credit to him in all of your successes, then he very well might trim you down like he did to Gideon. He might lead you along a path where you are going to be faced with impossible odds. He might put you in a situation where you feel in over your head and out of your depth. And I know in that place, it's, it's going to feel hard. It feels confusing. It feels downright scary to be there. And I'm sure Gideon felt the same way. But just like with Gideon, could it be that the Lord is trimming you down right now? He is humbling you because whether you realize it or not, you are on the cusp 
of a battle. Right now, he is doing something in your life because in a moment, he is going to achieve a mighty victory in your life. Maybe he's not making it easy because he doesn't want you boasting, thinking that you have saved yourself by your own hands. And this is especially true when it comes to our spiritual salvation from our sins and iniquities. You know, one of the greatest spiritual dangers is thinking that you can contribute to your own salvation, thinking that the quality of your life, thinking that the performance of your life somehow contributes to your salvation, somehow commends you before God. God, in his mercy, is going to dispel that that idea from your mind. He is going to stack the odds up against you in order to dispel that false notion. He wants you to know, without a doubt, that salvation belongs to our God, that he alone saves, that he alone does all the fighting, that he alone secures the victory. Like Gideon and his 300, when it comes to salvation, we just stand there and we cry out in faith and trust in the salvation that he's going to bring. And this is why when God was finally ready to save all of his people from an even greater enemy, the greatest enemy that we have from the spiritual bondage that we have to sin, he trimmed down the army all the way down. Less than 300, less than 100, less than 10, down to just one. One man, one hero who will fight the battle on behalf of God's people. This one man, the Lord Jesus, took on your sin and he bore the wrath of God alone. He defeated the devil. He trampled on death. He atoned for sin all by himself. He did it alone. And some of you have yet to share in the benefits of Jesus' solo act of salvation. There are those of you here who are still seeking, questioning, wondering whether or not this Jesus is worth it. The odds of saving yourself, you need to realize, are stacked up against you. Stop trying to save yourself. And I urge you instead to be like an Israelite who just stands there and shouts out. Shout out your great need for Jesus. Shout out your need for him to be your deliverer, your savior, your Lord. And just know he does stand ready to save you. And there will be no doubt who gets the glory. The battle cry of salvation is not for the Lord mostly and a little for us. No, it is salvation belongs to the Lord and him alone. So we've seen God stacking the odds against us, and that's because he's securing the glory for himself. But by the end of verse 8, God could tell that Gideon was still dealing with a lot of doubt. He was still plagued by unbelief. He still was in need of assurance, and that's what he supplies 
in verses 9 to 14. This is the third thing that we see God doing in this story, supplying the assurance we lack. The Lord graciously arranges for Gideon to overhear a conversation between two Midianite soldiers. Look at verse 9 with me. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it to your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Parai, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So God arranges for Gideon to sneak up to the Midianite camp at night to overhear a conversation happening between two soldiers that reveals the fear that has been spreading around the camp. One soldier tells another that he has had a dream about a cake of barley bread tumbling into the camp, knocking over all the tents. And his friend immediately provides the interpretation of that dream. Because in those days, barley was considered the food of the very poor, which would perfectly describe Israel at this point. And a tent was symbolic of the Midianites, since they were known to be a nomadic tent-dwelling people. And so the message behind this dream is clear. God has given Midian and all of the camp into the hands of Gideon and the Israelites. The Midianites were the biggest, baddest nation around in those days, and yet here they are shaking with fear over the barley bread that we call Israel. Friends, that suggests that our enemies are never as strong as they might appear. They're not as invulnerable as they seem to us. Remember that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Satan can't make you sin. Well, sure, he can tempt you. He can't make you sin. And idols are not irresistible, though they are alluring. If you are in Christ, then sin has no ultimate sway over you. There always is a way of escape. You know, the way that the Midianites are trembling at the name of Gideon reminds me of that episode in Acts chapter 19, when the Apostle Paul was in the city of Ephesus, there we're told that there were these seven sons of Sceva, these itinerant Jewish exorcists, who were going around trying to cast out evil spirits. And in this one incident, they were trying to cast out an evil spirit from a man by invoking now the name of Jesus. Well, in Acts 19, verse 13, they, they, they say to an evil spirit, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then the evil spirit, well, he, you know, he, he goes on and he attacks these men. The evil spirit feared the name of Jesus, even trembled at the name of Paul, but it wasn't going to be intimidated by some frauds who didn't know Paul or didn't know or trust in the Lord. The possessed man goes on to beat up these seven sons of Sceva, and they flee the house naked, we're told in Scripture. It's rather a humorous episode. But the point I'm trying to highlight 
is that these evil spirits actually knew Paul's name and they trembled at the sound of it. Just like how the Midianites trembled at the sound of Gideon's name. I know you, you probably are thinking, well, I mean, sure, it's the Apostle Paul after all. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't all those evil spirits tremble after him? No, you're missing the point here. The demons don't fear Paul just because it's Paul, because he's so holy, because he's planted so many churches. No, they fear Paul because he is simply a man in Christ. And Paul will be the first one to tell you that's the reason. So Christian, please do not take lightly this glorious truth that Christ is in you and that demons know your name and they tremble at the sound of it. Brothers and sisters, there is a greater power in us than we even realize. We are stronger than we really think we are. But not by a strength that is native to us, but by the power of the Spirit who lives in us. Christ in us. I hope you feel a greater sense of assurance knowing the kind of power that resides in you, if that is Christ is in you. God knows that he has stacked the odds against you. He knows that you are right now in your life being asked to step out in faith, to take a very big risk without a safety net. He knows you feel apprehensive. He knows how you feel, and he does care. And so he wants to supply you with some assurance that you currently lack. But notice with me, friends, how this assurance in Gideon's case was supplied to him not while he waited safely in the comfort of his tent. I wouldn't be surprised that while he was in his tent, he's reaching out, hey, where's that fleece again? <laughs> you know, let's do another test of God. Let's, let's, let's throw this out one more time, hoping that God would confirm and, and reaffirm his promises. But this time, Assurance did not come until Gideon stepped out in faith and put himself in a risky situation. You realize he had to crawl on down to the Midianite camp where he could have easily been detected and captured and the battle would have been over just like that. But it's in the risky situation where God meets you. That's where he meets you and assures you. It typically doesn't happen when you are safe and secure in your comfort zone. It's when you step out of it. Then he meets you and he brings and supplies the assurance. See, we expect God to supply us with assurances while we are still resting in the comfort of our couch until he makes it clear, crystal clear, that we are to go in this certain direction, until he confirms and reaffirms, until he clears away every single obstacle. Until then, we won't move an inch in obedience. But what this passage demonstrates is that if you want his assurances, then you will have to step out of what is safe and comfortable and to find God there. 
I believe God wants to do some amazing, wants you to do some amazing things for him and for the sake of the gospel. And I believe he wants the same for our church as a whole. You know, I'm excited about this new vision that we have embraced as an urban Chinese heritage church strategically located in central Houston next to key institutions that draw people from around the country and around the world. We want to be a training ground for equipping people to become disciple-making disciples. And we want to be a launching pad for sending out people to do kingdom work as, as pastors and ministers and missionaries and just faithful disciples in the marketplace. And we want to be a nesting ground for new and future church plants. That's our vision. It's a big vision. That's going to call all of us to get out of our comfort zones. That's going to call all of us, if we are going to pursue this vision, it's going to call us to take a big risk. It's going to be scary. It's going to feel like the odds are stacked against us. But friends, when we step out in faith, that's where we meet God, and that is where he is prepared to surprise us with a glorious display of his all-sufficient power. Let's go outside the camp. Let's meet God there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this strong reminder of how you will meet us in those risky places, in those situations where we have to trust in you or else all will fail. Oh Lord, help us to step out in faith. Help us to follow you in obedience. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.